Uh, if there is one word in the scriptures that captures uh, the presence of God and the same word also captures the environment of where he dwells, heaven. It would be the word glory. Uh, if you want to know God in his fullness, you would say, I want to know his glory. And in fact, Moses says this, uh, Exodus chapter 33, he, uh, he's talked to God face to face, but he says to God, God, show me your glory. And there's a story there in Exodus 33. Uh, many times in the scripture, when it refers to heaven, it just uses the, the term glory. And we use that many times in the songs that we sing. The word glory captures the essence of the presence of God and the place where he dwells that we experience his presence to the fullness. It is the word glory. It's used throughout the scriptures. I tried to do uh, a search of it this week, and it was just, it was a little bit overwhelming how many times the word glory um, is used in the Bible. Uh, the culmination of our salvation is heaven, is glory. Heaven is a place of glory. Because God dwells there in the fullness of his presence, and God is a God of glory. <laughs> salvation is more than heaven, but salvation includes heaven. It is the culmination of all that God is going to do to bring us to a place where we experience his glory in its fullness. In the Old Testament, uh, I've been reading in the life of Moses recently, and I've already mentioned this, but Moses was one that experienced the glory of God. Uh, that word glory uh, can be a word that means radiant. Uh, God's radiance. Uh, maybe we would use the word his majesty or his honor. <laughs> you might appreciate this. You, you know, your pastor may know a lot of Greek. My Hebrew is a little bit limited. I do want you to know I did make A's in both semesters of Hebrew in seminary. That sounds a little prideful, doesn't it? Forgive me. But I don't remember my Hebrew like I remember my Greek. I didn't take as much. But one of the things I remember is that the Old Testament word for glory <laughs> means heavy, weighty, someone that demands <laughs> your attention. Uh, 
I don't know. That just maybe that was funnier to me than it was to you. Okay. <laughs> the Old Testament Hebrew word for glory means weighty, heavy. That which is large demands your attention. Uh, Moses first experienced the glory of God at the burning bush. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when he was on the backside of the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep and he saw the bush that burned but was not consumed, the reason the bush was not consumed because in the bush was the glory of God. It was not consumed. When Moses led the children of Israel back to that place, to Mount Sinai, and Moses went to the top of the mountain, the people got a glimpse of the glory of God. There was, there was a, a light. There was lightning, maybe like this morning, and thunder. It was a manifestation of the glory of God on top of that mountain. In fact, God said, this mountain is holy. And they, they kind of roped it off and said, don't even touch it because whatever touches this mountain will die because God's presence was there. And what they saw and they heard was a manifestation of the glory of God. When the children of Israel in the days of Moses wandered in the wilderness, they were led... Hmm. At night, by a pillar of fire, the pillar of fire was the glory of God, a manifestation of the glory of God. And then that classic story I've already alluded to, you'll have to read it sometime, Exodus 33, where for some reason, after Moses has been on the mountain, he's come down with the Ten Commandments, the people have formed a golden calf, and he's thrown down the rocks, and he's going back up on the mountain. That time, Exodus 33, Moses, for whatever reason, says to God, show me your glory. And if I had to put it in terms of almost be like in a movie today, God would have said, you can't handle my glory. I think that's what God would have said. That's what it says in the Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And this is what, do you remember that story God says? He says, no, you cannot look at my glory. He said, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to put you in the cleft of a rock, in a crevice. And God said, I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to put my hand over that opening, and I'm going to, just as I pass by, you're going to see me pass by my backside. That's all you can get, Moses, is just a passing of me passing by because you cannot handle my glory not in its fullness and then when they when they set up the tabernacle the place that Moses and the people particularly Moses would meet with God I don't, I don't even know what this means the Shekinah glory of God came on that place. Hmm. So in the Old Testament, there are these manifestations as God 
shows who he is, these manifestations of glory in the Old Testament. But if you fast forward the story to the very end of the book, the book of Revelation, and we get to heaven and what that's like, when John, in human terms, tries to speak of that place, the one word that would capture that would be the word glory. What will heaven be like? It will be a place of glory. Why will it be a place of glory? Because God is a God of glory. And finally, when we get to heaven, when God gets his children to heaven, we will experience his glory as we never had had before. Because we will see him in his presence, in his fullness. I want you to know this morning that the culmination of my salvation and your salvation is heaven. And it will be a place of glory because God is a God of glory. But this is what I want you to get this morning. That God has not completed the work of his salvation until he has glorified you. Salvation is not complete until God has glorified you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. What I'm saying to you today, it's not just that your ultimate destination is heaven and that will be a place of glory. What I'm telling you today, for you to be the person in that place, the place of glory, God's going to also have to glorify you. Now, I'm going to say this once, and I won't have to repeat it again. When I say that God glorifies us, I am not saying we will ever reach the glory of God. But it only makes sense if we are the children of God that we would reflect his image and who he is. Therefore, if we come to the place where we experience him in the fullness and that is the place of glory, we will also have to be glorified. And our salvation, the work that God has been doing in our life and calling us to be his children and conforming us into the image of his son cannot be complete until God does his work of glorification in our life. We're going to talk about that this morning. God is not completed his work of salvation until he has glorified us. We have talked these last seven weeks about God's work of salvation. What is it that God does? When he saves us, what does it mean to be saved? And what all does that entail? And we have looked these weeks at Paul's description of salvation as he wrote to the Romans. A place that he had never been, a people that he did not know by face, a place that he did not know that he would ever get to, 
But led of the Spirit, he said, I, I may never get there, but I want to make sure that you understand as the church is formed in the most influential uh, city in the ancient world, Rome, that you understand at the very core of the gospel is what does it mean to be saved? And so we have talked these weeks, seven weeks, about what does it mean to be saved. And we have worked through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and the first half of 8. When Paul comes to the second half of Romans chapter 8, he begins to think of glory. And I want to read some of those verses this morning in, in Romans 8, 15. Let me read these, make a few comments. I've got a few things after that I want to tell you. And then we'll close. In Romans 8, 15. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, and here it is, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the cre creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And then verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you look in verse 15... Apostle Paul speaks about the Spirit. In fact, it's, it's in line. Uh, it's what he's been talking about. And it relates to what we were talking about last Sunday when we were talking about sanctification. And we'll talk more about it this week. But he's been talking about the Spirit. But he, he begins this thought in verse 15 and 16 and 17 where he says that the Spirit verifies to us that we are the children of God. That be, makes sense. 
If we're children of God, we have received of His Spirit. He dwells inside of us. We are His kids. And He verifies that. He assures us. And so what Paul is teaching here, and I don't have time to go into all the detail, but at salvation, we receive the Spirit of God. And it makes sense. It is through the Spirit that we are born again, but it is also through the Spirit, as he talks about in 15 and 16, that he assures us that we are the children of God. And so in 15 he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but here it is, but you received the spirit of adoption, that God not only gave birth to you, but he adopted you into his family, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of the Heavenly Father has come to dwell inside of us. When we come to the place in life where we acknowledge that we are a sinner and that Christ is the only way of salvation and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe we are born again. And at the born again experience of regeneration, the Spirit comes to live inside of us for a number of reasons, not only for assurance of salvation, but also for sanctification. We're also going to talk about glorification today. The Spirit is God's pledge, guarantee, as Paul says in other uh, scriptures, his down payment that he is going to complete salvation. When Jesus comes and forgives us of our sin in our initial experience of faith in Christ, yes, our sin is taken out of the way. Yes, heaven is assured, but there is work for God to do in our lives. The presence of the Spirit is God's pledge to complete that salvation. It is what he describes in verse 23 as the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, the first, the Spirit is the first fruits of glory. I want you to get this before we move on. When God's Spirit comes to live inside of us, and God is a God of glory, we get a little taste of God in our lives, even though we are walking in the earthly realm. It is not the fullness of all that we will know of God, but we first fruits. Uh, it's used several ways here. First fruits. When, uh, when a harvest comes... Well, this, that's going to be redundant. The first fruits are the first fruits that you harvest. Yeah, okay. If, if a fruit tree is bearing fruit, it's the first fruit that's ripe. It's, just, it's not complicated, is it? And it's the beginning of the harvest. It's the beginning of all that God is going to do. And when He gives you the Spirit in your initial experience of salvation it is a a sampling it is a it is a taste an initial taste of what god will do it is the first fruits of the spirit it is it is the first fruits of glory to experience the presence of god through his spirit in verse 17, he says, 
he has said that the Spirit verifies that we are the children of God. In verse 17, he says, if we are children, then we are heirs. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we're the children of God, then we are heirs to God. What do heirs get? They get an inheritance. And Paul is beginning to think about what's coming. Someday when you die, you're going to get an inheritance. You're a child of God. You're, you're heirs of God. You're going to receive an inheritance. What is the inheritance? Inheritance is our home. It is the experience of glory and all that God is going to do. It is rightfully ours because we are the children of God. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who our daddy is. It is what he has for us. It is a place of glory. And he says, he, he, Paul is beginning to think in those terms that we are heirs of God. There is something that is coming after we die. But the other concept in verse 17 is it's not just that we are heirs. He says we are joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we don't have time to talk about the suffering today. But if you've ever suffered in your life, say amen. Amen. All right, we're moving on from our suffering. We're talking about glory now, okay? Thank you for not camping out there with suffering. If indeed we suffer with him, we shall... And Christ suffered for us. I'm sorry, I was going to move on. I ask you to move on. I do, ought to do the same, shouldn't I? Christ suffered for us. We will suffer for him. That we may also be glorified together. Oh, let me just camp out here for just a minute. <laughs> we are heirs together with Christ. We are glorified together with Christ. This is the, the mental image, and I know this because of other scriptures that Paul uh, writes and is recorded in scripture. This is what Paul was thinking. That Christ, and he says this, was the first fruits of the resurrection. When Jesus died and they laid him in the tomb and God raised him from the dead on the third day, he was, he was raised not in his earthly body, he was raised, and we talked about this last Sunday, he was raised in his heavenly glorified body. We know that because at the end of 40 days he lifted up and he ascended and he went to heaven without his body dying. It didn't need to die. It was the glorified, it was the heavenly body. He is there. He is there in our inheritance. We are going to be joint heirs with Him. We will be glorified together with Him. And I, I said this last Sunday, what are we going to be like? We're going to be like Jesus. Behold, a, uh, I'm supposed to be able to quote that. Ah, First John 3 uh, I'm sorry. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, 1 John 3, 2, Now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. I'm telling you today that our salvation in Jesus Christ is not complete until we become like Him. But we can't become like Him in this life because the glory that represents God is not appropriate in this fallen place. And he's, 
Paul's going to talk about that. Probably don't even have time this morning to deal with that. But someday we will be like Jesus. We will be in a glorified state. God's salvation in your life and in my life is not complete until we are glorified, that we become like Jesus, because otherwise we would fall short. We would not represent what the children of God ought to be. Do you understand? In the very beginning of time, it says that when God made man, he made him in his image. And God and man lived in a perfect place (laughs) together. And sin came. And we marred, we messed up the image of God. What I'm telling you today is that when God saves us, it's not just to take away our sin, but it is to bring us back to all that he intended. God's ultimate goal is for us to be glorified. And you know why God wants us to be glorified? Not for our glory, but because of his glory. You know why? Because we're his kids we represent him and for God to ever stop short of that glory would be disrespectful to who God is in his glory does that make sense someday yes God will take us to a glorified state place but God is also going to glorify us so that we represent who he is. That's mm. So Jesus dies, is buried, is resurrected in his glorified body, ascends to the Father, and he is there. And until we become like him in that place, God's salvation has fallen short in our lives. He must glorify us for his own name's sake, for us to be in his presence and to represent his name and to be his kids, we must be conformed back to the image that is representative of his son and of his children. I hate to tell you, that's all that, in verse 17, when Paul says that we may also be glorified together, from the other scriptures I read in Paul It's all in his mind as he says that. Oh, let's press on in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hmm. The glory which shall be revealed in us. God is a God of glory, and God will choose in his salvation of his children also to glorify them. He will reveal his glory in us. I I say that, and what I read in Paul's verse 18 is that glorification is God's work. It is something that God must do, a God of glory. It would be ridiculous for us to sit here someday and and to think somehow I'm going to glorify myself and I'm going to bring myself to some kind of state so that my glory is appropriate for the very and the fullness of the, the glory of God 
in his glorious place. There's no way. You know why? Because of sin. <laughs> it's been several weeks since we read this verse. Romans 23. For all have, think about it, <laughs> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. I thought that was interesting, the way Paul's already thinking about that. No, when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And God, in his work of salvation, is bringing us to the place where we are glorified, that we're in the place that we ought to be. I don't have time to talk about this this morning, but 19, 20, 21, 22, he talks about how our world is subjected to futility. Our world is a world of corruption, of decay, of separation from God. It is marred by sin. And all of creation, all that is within us, longs for that day when the sons of God, the children of God, will be revealed in all of their glory. And I wish I had time. But in verse 23, not only that, but we also have, we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So even when our bodies are laid in the grave, someday Jesus will come again. And yes, we came from dust and dust we return, but someday because of the power of Jesus, even our bodies that decay and are, and are corrupted will be redeemed into a glorious body. Why? Because we're the children of God. And God's not going to leave us in that state because we have to reflect his image. We are the work of his salvation. He cannot leave us in that state. God must glorify us, not for us, but for him because he put his name on us. It is a work that God will do, not us. And so then when you come to verse 29, he begins to talk about what God will do. He talks about, he says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did God predestine us? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is Paul's way of, yes, encompassing sanctification, that day by day we are being conformed into the image of his son. But ultimately, it is the statement of glorification that someday we will be like him in his glorified state. God will glorify his children. It will be a total transformation of all that we are. I want you to understand today what this teaches us is that God in his salvation doesn't do it halfway. God does the work of salvation. And it is not complete until he glorifies us. We as his children are a reflection of him and his work of salvation. He glorifies us for his own glory and it is only appropriate. Glorification in all of salvation is the work of God. And he is the only one who has the power to save and to ultimately glorify. One of my intents of all these sermons, as we looked at Paul's discussion of salvation is for you to understand, for me to understand that salvation is what God does 
to us out of his grace. And if there is one component of that that proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is this last component of glorification because it would be ridiculous for any of us to sit here today and say, oh, someday I'm going to be able to glorify myself. No. No. Glorification and all of salvation is the work of God. That's why the title of the sermon's so great a salvation. And I'm afraid we forget that salvation is what God does in all of it. I, can I show my seven words? I want to show my seven words. And I want to end with this. <clears throat> I've used these seven words in this sermon series to give us just some, some bullet points or words of what Paul teaches about salvation. That God is a righteous God and when we fall short of that we sin. In the midst of our sin God chooses in His love and His mercy to approach us in grace to say, I will continue to pursue you and draw you unto myself. The trigger is when we believe, when we have faith in Christ. And then what does God do? He justifies us. He puts us in a righteous state before him. He doesn't leave us there because he changes our inner being. He begins to sanctify us, conform us to the image of his son. It starts at conversion and it goes all the way, sanctification goes all the way till the day that we die. But the day that we die, God completes his work of salvation by glorifying us and taking us to heaven that we experience the place of the fullness of God's glory. I do all these seven weeks so that you would understand the greatness of God's salvation of what he does. Don't ever forget that. But here it is. That fourth word, the middle word of all seven of those, is the word faith. In fact, if you look at that list, there's only two things that we do. We sin, <laughs> and then we're called upon to believe. Well, the Bible says we've all sinned. And we fall short of the glory of God. And God in his grace approaches each one of us to draw us unto himself. But the middle word is the key word for us in this room today. It is the word faith. It is the trigger that activates the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification. In fact, there is no way for God to do his work against our will unless we believe. These sermons will only have an effect on your life if you believe. If in your heart you turn to Christ 
and place your faith in Him. And the amazing thing is that when we do, it activates the salvation of God so that He justifies us, He sanctifies us, and ultimately He glorifies us. Not because of us, but because of Him. Because once God has put His name on us, His reputation is at stake. And He will do the work. And someday He will be, we will know Him as a faithful Father who got us home. Not because of what we had done, but because of what God has done. But the challenge today, do you know that you have believed? Do you know that you've placed your faith in Him? These, it doesn't matter what you know in your mind. It doesn't matter what I've described, what you can read, what with your human mind you could comprehend about salvation from Paul's letter to the Romans. Unless your heart yields to Him and you turn to Christ. But I would tell you, at least from one witness, that you can trust Him to do His work of salvation. It is not a matter of you getting your life in order and coming to God. It is not a matter of you sitting there this morning saying, I don't know that I can live it out. No, God will do the work of salvation in your life. It's not a matter of him saving you and somehow then putting you there and saying, okay, well, you've got to live in such, such a way and you've got to you know, do this so you get there. No, he's going to get you there because he's put his name on you. His reputation is at stake. His glory is at stake. At stake. It is only a question of today, will you surrender? Will you yield to the only way that's what, that's what Hebrews 2.3 says. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? My challenge to you today, would you surrender? Would you yield? Would you place your faith in Christ? And I am at least one witness that would say today, a great Savior and if you will only turn to Him He will save you if you would stand this morning Byron's going to lead us in a song at the end I'm going to be at the front I invite you to come and to yield your life to Christ And let Christ do his work of salvation in you. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe.